101 on a Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are now officially in hour two of the program. Hour two of this show is brought to you by Primetime Craft Beer. Meticulously brewed for quality and taste, Primetime is full flavor without compromise. You can find it at a liquor store near you or visit the brewery to see how it's made. Or you can hang out right here at Sportsnet 650 because the Primetime folks are coming by after the show today. We're going to show them around the studio. We're going to drink some beer at 9 a.m. It's going to be a great old time. Yeah. But it's okay because it's full flavor without compromise. And go home for... A bit of a nap. It's perfect. It's my, a, my kind of Wednesday. We've been awake for a few hours. We can have yeah, a, yeah. an afternoon. It's like a it's like a noon beer, basically, for us. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't slept in days. <laughs> We're coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Canada's favorite orthotics provider, powered by thousands of five-star Google reviews. Sore feet, what are you waiting for? Kintech, that's what you're waiting for. Uh, we're going to do this coming back. You've from... gotten a lot better at that since I was lost on the show. Thanks. Yeah, I've been working on it. Nice. The one word I have to say in response to Jason. I really nailed it. Um... We're going to do every time we're coming back from break. Now we're going to look back on not a great Canucks trade deadline acquisition. Some say forgettable, some say regrettable, but there's certain ones that just stand out just because it's remembering some dudes. A lot of you wrote in my favorite one of all time. And that was uh, 2006 when the Canucks went out and tapped the St. Louis blues on the shoulder and said, we would like to acquire Eric Weinrich and his laser tag visor. Can we get him? Blues were like, seriously? You want him? Sure. 39-year-old Eric Weinrich. Do you remember the laser tag visor? I remember the visor, yeah. Yeah. I don't remember the year or the situation it was. So uh, the Canucks missed the playoffs that year. It was uh, not a good year for the Mm. Vancouver Canucks, but God bless them. They picked up Keith Carney. Oh, right, yeah. I remember him, They got so much older at the trade deadline. (laughs) But uh, the only thing, well, Eric Weinrich came here. Played in 16 games. He put up like the Tony Snell 0 0 0. He did minus nothing. 13, too. He was bad. He was minus 10. And then he just stopped playing blues. hockey because he was basically 40 years old. But for the, for the kids that don't know, there was a brief time where certain NHLers uh, flirted with tinted visors. And Eric Weinrich took it to the next did level. Did Ovi ever wear one? He did, yeah. Yeah. But Eric Weinrichs was a, a different kind of tint because it was very yellow. Mm-hmm. And it looked like the kind of visor that... Now, for those that... Laser Tag had a really small window of popularity. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Um, they had, like, Laser Tag teams. You'd go out drinking on a Thursday with your Laser Tag buddies. Anyway. <laughs> it was the new bowling. <laughs> right. And then they're like, what if we just had, like, paintball? And then I think... What's the new one now? Airsoft? Just They just shoot each other with guns, basically. Did they ban... The yellow visor? Because I know yeah. they, they banned the mirror tint. Like, yeah, well, we can't I think, wear I think they got, I think they're like, we can't keep doing this. You look ridiculous. So, but um, it's a bad look for the sport. Eric Weinrich, uh, one of those guys. We're doing this because we're gonna. We're hoping that the Canucks are going big game hunting this at this year's deadline, right? That we're not gonna make these sort of like fringe pickups. Yes, I just said the Royal We whatever. Deal did with did, it. did Eric Weinrich get Mark Crawford fired? Because I think he was gone the very next year, wasn't he? I don't think he helped. <laughs> Crow always held it over him. Yeah. Like yellow tinted guy. Yeah. You know, we probably would have won more games if he had just a regular visor. <laughs> anyway. Okay. A uh, few things we want to get into here. We got an open segment. If you want to weigh in on pretty much anything, this is your time to do it. This is the same show that had a Mark Edward Vlasic goal in the intro. So you know that we're uh, we're a little thin on content today. However, 
not thin on content as it pertains to the National Football League. This is your home of the Canucks Sports Sense 650. It's also your home of the Seattle Seahawks. Yesterday was a pretty profound day for the Seattle Seahawks because a lot of the coaches that they thought they might be getting a crack at said, no, don't want any part of that. The big one, of course, was Detroit Lions offensive coordinator Ben Johnson. Not the, not the former sprinter. No. He could still get the job, theoretically, if he wanted it. But uh, offensive coordinator from the Detroit Lions, Ben Johnson, said no to the Seattle Seahawks, mm. no to the Washington Commanders. And he said, you know what? I'm going to stick as the offensive coordinator of the Detroit Lions, which I thought was pretty interesting. Did you read the reports that some teams were put off by how much he was asking for? Well, I sure did, friend, because according to Josina Anderson of <laughs> CBS, the asking price for Ben Johnson to become your team's next head coach was... $15 million annually. <laughs> what? I thought it was a typo at first. I thought, Josina, do you have this right? And then I went back and double-checked on the old Twitter machine. $15 million. It was uh, said that some teams balked. They actually made that word, that sound. Ball? <laughs> Ball. $15 million for a guy that's never been a head coach in the NFL. Uh, so Ben Johnson. I actually don't know where that stacks up with. Average it doesn't even NFL matter. Coaches. I think there has to be a certain. It's just too much. A certain, there has to be a lineage before you get to 15 mil per, mm -hmm. right? Anyway, so Ben Johnson sticks in Detroit. Ben and Johnson then, maybe went like, I don't really want either of those jobs so or any of these jobs, so maybe I'll just ask for a crazy amount of money. He's turned down a lot of gigs. Because mm -hmm. remember, previously, he turned down the Atlanta job last season. Maybe Dan Campbell is just like so intimidating. He's like, don't leave or I'll find you. It could be. I, I don't know. very caffeinated right now. It's true. He's had 16 coffees this morning. <laughs> the equivalent of 16 coffees. Okay, so who's left for the Seahawks right now? Well, is it, is it Mike McDonald? Hold not on, because another not, guy that they interviewed also said, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to stay where I'm at. And okay. that is uh, Houston Texans offensive coordinator Bobby Slowick. Slowick. Now, Slowick, like Johnson, became a hot candidate this year because of his work with likely offensive rookie of the year, C.J. Stroud. Sure. They had a fantastic year in Houston. The Seahawks did interview this guy. They interviewed him back on January 21st. Now, it kind of became unclear who wasn't really interested in who. According to the Seahawks, they didn't book a center interview, second interview with Slowick. Uh, and, but according to other folks, it was that Slowick wasn't really interested in going back for a second interview because he was interviewing a bunch of other places, including Atlanta, twice. He decides, no, I'm going to stay in Houston. So much like Ben Johnson, he says, you know, I'll, I'll stay here. I'll continue to be an offensive coordinator as opposed to jumping on that, that head coaching train. Now, the one you're talking about, the interview that's drawn a lot of attention in Seattle, is Baltimore Ravens defensive coordinator Mike McDonald. Not the Canadian comedian Mike McDonald. Right, and I think there was a singer, Mike McDonald, as well. I'd have to double-check on that one. Anyway, uh, he had a very good year in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. uh, that defense was one of, if not the top units in the NFL. They were tops in terms of points allowed per game, sacks, and turnovers, if I'm not, not mistaken. Now, he had a lot of good players to work with, a lot of undisciplined defenders as well. But um, here's more from NFL Network's Ian Rappaport talking about the Mike McDonald interview yesterday with Seattle Seahawks general manager John Schneider and why that might be the big one in this whole song and dance about finding coaches in the National Football League. Yeah, and, and the Mike McDonald one is fascinating to me because, first of all, I've talked to a couple teams who interviewed him. 
It sounds like he has been really dynamic in some of these interviews. I had one uh, person involved with one of the head coach searches who said this was the best interview we had by far. He is young. He is bright. Sort of the defensive Sean McVay is how he was described to me. And the fact that Seattle was willing to wait until after the Super Bowl to talk to him gives me Shane Steichen vibes. That makes me think he is a really, really strong candidate in, in Seattle. We will see where it goes today, but certainly that is one to watch. So this is interesting because the Seahawks said, I guess through unofficial reporting channels, that they were willing to wait until after the Super Bowl if the Ravens had made it and Mike McDonald wasn't going to be made available for interviews. That's how much that they valued him and that they wanted to see what he was all about. Is he also a candidate for Washington's job, though? All of these guys are. It sounds like everyone that's shaking loose right now has basically booked interviews with Seattle and Washington. Mm -hmm. Now, And then there's Dan Quinn, not the former hockey player. Correct. And golfer. Right. He's a a very good golfer. Um, I... So this kind of gives me hope because right now, I'm not going to lie, my thoughts on the Seahawks coaching search were uh, it's too vast. There's too many interviews. There's too many candidates. I know being thorough and being diligent and talking to everyone is probably the right way to go. But I also like a definitive decision. I like it when you identify your target and you say, this is our guy. Mm-hmm. We've done our research. We know you know, I get the interview process is important, but you know a lot about these guys prior to getting into the uh, door. I think it's really important to. I, I think it's really important to actually have a conversation with these guys. I don't disagree. Sometimes a, a reputation can be wrong, right? And I think that you know this is good that they seem really enamored with Mike McDonald. If this was their guy all along, and they were just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting until he shook loose for interviews, mm-hmm. that's great. It does not sound as though Dan Quinn and Mike Vrabel, two of the guys that we thought were the clubhouse leaders for this thing, uh, really have materialized as the guy that Seattle wants to get behind. I do wonder if this has to do with let's get a guy in that's young, and Mike McDonald is absolutely young, Mm -hmm. is a rising star in the coaching ranks, and we can find our next guy long-term as opposed to, all due respect to Quinn and Vrabel, the NFL's recycling program. Right. You know? So I'll be interested to I have another question. Yes. Um, <laughs> is all this going to limit this delay I'm talking about? Is is this going to limit who their coordinators are? Because Shane Waldron isn't with the team anymore. He's with the Bears, right? Yep. He's their OC. He's, he's the OC. And Clint Hurt uh, went to the Eagles as the defensive line coach. Like, yeah. I'm not worried about those guys being gone. I'm worried about hiring is there anyone going to be good left for the coordinator job after the Seahawks finally decide on a candidate I do wonder if that's why they did the amount of interviews that they've done so that they've got like secondary and tertiary spots lined up but some people. of those guys would be like I'm already a coordinator some of them, so the Seahawks would be like well you can be a well, better paid coordinator here I mean, or the, what the Clint Hurt thing if you want to look at it um that's a step backwards career wise Right, he's gone from being a defensive coordinator, a multi-year defensive coordinator, to now working under his former buddy Vic Fangio, who's the defensive coordinator in Philly. And now Clint Hurd has kind of been—I don't want to say reduced, but he's a defensive line coach now. Mm-hmm. Right? I—I uh, I think that they were ready to move on from both coordinators, even if they had kept Pete Carroll. Right? They yeah. need. They, they, I think. Waldron had run his time there. I was not enamored with anything that Shane Waldron did over the course of his time as offensive coordinator in Seattle. Oh, but, I think the I think not last season, but the season before. 
what Geno Smith did. I, mean, I never, was... t- you know what? I still thought that they were leaving things on the table. I'm okay. not going to lie. I thought that Geno's first year with the NFL comeback player of the year and everything was terrific. But every time I looked at the, the weapons that they had on offense, I just felt like that offense could have been mm-hmm. more creative more dynamic. I mean, you look at some of the stuff that NFL teams are running on a regular basis now, yeah. and the high-end teams, There's they're just figuring out a lot more ways to get the ball into the hands of their playmakers, and they're making a lot more guys, in terms of personnel, right. effective. Yeah, Like, for long stretches this year, I would watch the Seahawks, and I'm like, do they have a tight end? A pass-catching tight end? Mm-hmm. Because it didn't seem like there was ever anything drawn up. Also, do the running backs ever catch passes in this offense? And yeah. it felt like it took forever for them to get that going, right? And then you look at... They were terrible at screens both offensively and defensively. Yeah. It was not good. And I... Not, <laughs> they were, when not they coincidentally, When Walter they would try and run a screen, the other team would be just all over it. Yeah, we have we sniffed this out an hour ago. <laughs> we knew this was coming, Shane Waldron. So it's, I don't think it's a huge surprise that Waldron... And now, fare thee well, Clint Hurt... Uh, didn't seem like you coach tackling all that well. Okay. Um, we got it. We're in an open segment here. So we've done the football thing. We did a little bit of hockey. Um, I do want to kind of carve out some time. So basketball, Ben, who's a golf Ben and bruff. Uh, I want to know what's going on with the PGA tour. Cause another huge development overnight and into the morning that I don't really understand, but you guys do. Well, I don't fully understand it. Yet, uh, the PGA Tour has finalized an agreement with an entity called the Strategic Sports Group, which is a bunch of billionaire sports team owners to infuse at least $3 billion into the new for-profit entity PGA Tour Enterprises. Uh, ESPN is reporting this, and the PGA Tour also had a big release about it. Now, among the names... Uh, out there are John Henry from the Boston Red Sox, Arthur Blank from the A- A- Atlanta Falcons, Steve Cohen from the New York Mets, Tom Ricketts from the Chicago Cubs. So some big names in the world of sports ownership are now investing in the PGA Tour in the same entity, this new for-profit group okay. called PGA Tour Enterprises that the Saudis were going to invest in. Hmm. And it's being reported by ESPN that the PGA Tour, meanwhile, is continuing its negotiations to finalize an agreement with the Saudis and the DP World Tour, which is over in Europe, which would potentially inject additional billions of dollars into PGA Tour enterprises I don't know what to make of this. When I first read it, I was like, oh, they're putting together a war chest because this deal with the Saudis is falling apart okay. and they're still losing players. So they're putting together a bunch of money so they can keep the players and stop all this. But then it's being reported that the PGA Tour is still negotiating with the Saudis. Is this maybe a th- Basketball, Ben, is this a threat to the Saudis? Like, hey, come to the negotiating table and mm-hmm. let's get a deal done here because we've got all this money now. I think what I've been reading and seeing is that there's some regulatory issues dealing with the P- 
PIF money with the Saudis. Yeah, you don't say. And so, really? <laughs> this deal isn't really a threat. It's more of like it's buying the PGA Tour time. Mm-hmm. And it's injecting a ton of money, especially to their top players. It's a $3 billion investment from this group. $900 million of that will be in equity shares to 180 players. And 760 of that million dollars goes to the top 36 players. So to the players, it's like, hey, we're going to give you a ton of money. You're going to stay on the PGA Tour right. and buy us some time to get a merger kind of going together. And what so, a boon for all these players. I know. Like, this is incredible. If if you're even like an average PGA Tour player. Loving it. And you're not, and you're not getting any of this money, oh, you okay. got to call your agent and be like, uh, where's my money? Exactly. I, I want my, uh, you've missed 30 cuts in a row. I still want it. Yeah. But for the next five years, every single purse on the PGA Tour is now covered. So what this theoretically has done is it's just been like, okay, we can talk with the Saudis and not be handcuffed ourselves to do whatever they want us to do. Mm-hmm. and we So can, it is a war chest. It is. But it just it's not a threat, though. It's just kind of being like, hey, we want to keep our players, too, mm-hmm. and find a happy medium so that we can all have the best players in the world playing against each other. So if there are regulatory issues with <laughs> the Saudis nice investing in this, which means like, you know, I don't know, if the politicians are just like, we don't want Saudi Arabia having essentially control of the PGA Tour, or at least major influence on the on the PGA Tour. We don't want this for whatever reason. Where does it go then? If they shut that down, do the Saudis just keep trying to pump up live golf and these two tours are going to be competing with each other for years and years to come? I guess so. And I guess it kind of comes down to the players. That stinks, position. man. It, that, it's that, so sad. That, that really stinks. Because even now you can see there's a huge you know crossing between there's great talent on live mm-hmm. and unfortunately they don't mean they don't get any viewers because it's, it is hard to watch a little bit but yeah. you don't see the best players in the world like pebble beach is this upcoming week pebble and, beach and then you've got waste management like two, riviera two uh, the, yeah three of the they're not majors but they are big time golf tournaments that everyone enjoys watching you know pebble beach for the scenery and the celebrities waste management because of all the craziness that goes on there because it's super bowl weekend and then riviera is one of the great courses in california you know it's got this great tradition there um and this used to be where golf fans started getting ramped up for the season, right? Like these would be the tournaments that we'd be playing into April when the Masters was on. And I'm, you know, the majors haven't changed at all that much, Mm. but like the regular tour stops that everyone used to enjoy, they're getting watered down. It's impacting the fans. Uh, Dan Rappaport just tweeted this out. Today's deal really has no impact on Live Golf or its future relationship with the PGA Tour. The PGA Tour gets money. Live continues as a separate entity, at least for now. Regulatory issues are really complicating any sort of quote-unquote merger. So it could happen in the future still. Like It's not off the table with this deal. Okay, so we've got two big guests coming up on the show. In about 10 minutes, uh, Elliot Friedman is going to join us, and we will talk about... Uh, Kuzmenko, and more specifically, I think, because we all knew Kuzmenko could be traded, what is going on with Frege putting Nikita Zadorov's name out there? Um, we already spoke about Rick Dollywall's reaction uh, to this news um, yesterday, and Dollywall on Donnie and Dolly was saying that, yes, he con- did confirm that, yes, 
the Canucks are getting calls on Zadorov. He said that originally the plan was for the Canucks to trade for Zadorov and extend him, give him a contract. Um, but then Dolly Wall said people change their minds. So maybe something has happened with Zadorov, either. You know, Donnie, I haven't heard this from anyone else, but Donnie was hinting at maybe issues in the room, which I kind of find hard to believe because, I don't know, Zadorov seems like a pretty popular player, um, but who knows? And we don't know what goes on behind the room, or maybe it's just they don't like his play on the ice. I remember he admitted, Zadorov admitted, like, I'm a bit of a slow learner when it comes to new systems. So maybe there's some frustration from the coaching staff there. Um, I did think it said a lot when he made, granted it was like, it was a pretty pretty bad mistake not to tie up Toropchenko's stick uh, against St. Louis, but I mean, that happens in a hockey game. He got benched for an entire period. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's fairly punitive, which suggests to me that There are other things that are going on with his game that Adam Foote, who runs the defense, finally got fed up with. And he was just like, okay. Like, that doesn't doesn't happen without other mistakes happening. Mm -hmm. And we all remember the Flyers game when (laughs) Zudorov tried to go on a rush and turn the puck over and Joel Farabee scored. And it was, I mean, that was a very, very loud mistake. So... We all know the Canucks came in to this season and talked about structure and the system and everyone buying in and I suppose everyone understanding the system. The issue with Kuzmenko has been very public. Rick Tockett has said this guy doesn't forecheck. He doesn't forecheck like we need him to. And if one guy on a line isn't forechecking when it's his job, if he's F1 and he's not forechecking, that screws everyone else up because... The first four checker goes in there and forces a defenseman to make a play and hopefully quickly and hopefully that play is made badly and then F2 and F3 are able to take advantage of that. Um, if Kuzmenko isn't doing that, then it puts everyone else in a pickle and leaves them a little bit flat-footed. So we understand that. We know what Kuzmenko needs to do better and I imagine Kuzmenko ne- understands what he needs to do better. Maybe there's something going on with Zadorov in the same vein. Who knows? But we can talk to Fridge about that. At 8 o'clock, Marie-Philippe Poulain, the greatest women's hockey player perhaps ever, will join us at 8 o'clock to talk about the Professional Women's Hockey League and the uh, women having representation in the NHL All-Star Game. They're going to have a bit of a three-on-three showcase in Toronto tomorrow tomorrow and you know one thing about the women when they go out and showcase their skills this isn't going to be like the beer league hockey style we see from the typical NHL all-star game where guys are barely trying Mm -hmm. they're going to go out there and give it their all because they're trying to sell women's hockey and they're trying to sell this new league. So we'll talk to uh, Mary Philippe Poulin, Captain Clutch, about that, but also her incredible career and all the big goals that she scored in the Olympics for Canada. Uh, lots more to get to. Elliot Friedman, you know him, 32 Thoughts.
the Jeff Merrick Show. He's going to join us next. Don't go anywhere. Freege next on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Big opinions and good bets. It's the People's Show with Big Nazar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Getting message to you, Rudy vibes. This is the tide is high. Yeah, the tide is high. I'm holding on, but it's license. I'm going to be, I'm gonna be your number one. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Yeah, hundred percent, totally. Yeah, Dollarama Blondie. That's right. Coin that phrase. You're listening to the Alfred and Brough Show on Sportsnet. She was in a movie I just saw. How really? What movie? Video drum. You just saw a video. I drum. just saw it for the first time. I have no follow-ups. It Alfred was a trip. <laughs> Alfred and Brough in the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer. Today we are in hour two of the program. Elliot Friedman's going to join us in just a moment here. The highlight of hour two. Uh, hour two is brought to you by Primetime Craft Beer, meticulously brewed for quality and taste. Primetime is full flavor without compromise. You can find it at a liquor store near you, or you can visit the brewery to see how it's made. Uh, before we get to Frege, going to do another trip down memory lane. So the first Canucks trade deadline acquisition <laughs> that we brought up earlier was Eric Weinrich. Remember him? 16 games. Not a statistical accomplishment to his name other than the minus 13. Yellow tinted laser tag visor retired shortly thereafter. Here's another one for you. 2006-07 season, Canucks make two acquisitions at the deadline. One was bringing back old Brent Sopel. Okay. Second yeah, kick yeah, in the can. Everyone yeah, yeah. remembers that one. Lesser known one, a lot of people forget. Brian Smolinski. Smoke, they called him. From St. Louis, was it? Um, no, Chicago. Oh, okay. He did play for St. Louis. So he did. He yeah. played for a lot of teams. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know what? You're wrong. He did not play for St. Louis. Really? Nope. He played oh. for Boston. Pittsburgh, the New York Islanders, Los Angeles Kings, Ottawa Senators, Chicago Blackhawks, Vancouver Canucks, Montreal Canadiens, and he retired. Fun fact. He was like, that's enough teams. Yeah, I'm done. I played for half of them. The Canucks made so many trades with the Blues, maybe I just assumed that. That's true. Yeah. They did, especially at the deadline. Mm-hmm. He now uh, refs high school hockey in Michigan. So there you go. Smolenski? Yeah. He coaches as well. Yeah. High-level AAA. Okay, uh, let's go to the phone lines now. Elliot Friedman joins us here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Morning, Fried. How are you? Morning, guys. How are you doing? Uh, we're well. Thanks for taking the time to do this. We do appreciate it. You know, it's actually like a 32 Thoughts reunion show here on Halford & Bruff because we had Merrick on about an hour ago. Yeah, that must have been terrible. <laughs> Yeah, he, he droned on a little bit, but uh, no. We, well, you want to hear droning on? You got the right guy. Here we go. Um, let's. I know you've spoken about Kuzmenko, but the name you threw out there the other day, Zadorov. Well, first of all, it put Rick Dollywall in a real tizzy, um, and you know he's he's just like I, I called Dan Milstein. He says it's not true. Um, why did you throw that name out there? 
Well, I think it's, uh, I was probably a, a little more careless than I should have been, to be perfectly honest. I should have explained it better. Um, uh, but I, I do think his name has kind of come up. Um, I, I look like the teams out there looking for defensemen, Toronto, Jersey. And I, um, I think those, and also, obviously there's a GM in Toronto that knows Zadorov very well. So I think that there's probably been some conversation about it. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's going to happen, but I think the bigger reason I, I, I kind of came out was, um, honestly, the Canucks are going to have to move money to do what they want to do, right? They're going to do something. They're going to go out and they're going to get another forward at least. And I just think that in order to do that, um, you know, when I went into sports, I was told there was going to be no math, but you can do the numbers on a napkin. And Mm -hmm. it is that if they're going to go out and they're going to get a Lindholm, they're going to need to clear a salary. And you look up and down their roster and what are the salaries that, you know, kind of make the most sense, either the most sense to move or probably fit the most to move. And and those are the names. What are you hearing about Chris Tanev? Because the other thing with the Canucks defense that you could speculate about Zadorov is that if everyone's healthy on the left side, you got Quinn Hughes, you got Carson Soucy, and you got Ian Cole and Nikita Zadorov. And Rick mm-hmm. Tockett likes to go lefty righty. Um, and if all four of those guys are healthy, unless one of them's a healthy scratch, then you got to go lefty lefty. Now, mm-hmm. if Zadorov got moved out and Chris Tanev brought, got brought in, first of all, it gives the Canucks the option to play Chris Tanev with Quinn Hughes if they want to spread Hironic to another pair or whatever. It just gives them more lefty-righty options. So what are you hearing about yes. Tanev out of Calgary? Well, first of all, I know that they were hoping to get a good look at Cole because initially when all four of those guys were healthy, I think they wanted to give Cole a shot on the weak side because they just wanted to see how it went. Uh, they, they had a bit of a luxury in the sense that because they've had as good a year as they've had, they're in the playoffs and they could probably look at it for a little bit and see how it could go. But then of course, Susie got hurt again and it kind of blew up that plan. So I, I think in, uh, on a one level there, that was a bit of a disappointment for the Canucks guys because I think they did want to see how Cole would look on the weak side. But uh, in terms of Tanev, Look, I think there's a lot of teams looking at him. Um, and, there, and I don't think that surprises anybody in Vancouver. You guys, as much as anybody, know how good he is and how highly respected he is. Um, this Ottawa thing is very real. Uh, they've made a push at him. Uh, they would like to not only trade for him, but they'd like to sign him and extend him. And I think the biggest question is, you know, they're not a playoff team this year does Tanev want to give up a year of chasing the Stanley cup? So I'm curious if this is something that kicks up again in the summer after he goes somewhere right now. Um, Look, if the Canucks were interested long-term, I think he would definitely be interested. I know he liked his time there. Um, He's not a guy who's uncomfortable playing in Canada, but there's going to be a lot of competition for him because of the resume he's got and because of the high regard people hold him in. So, but I do think this, look, I think if the Canucks were interested in Tanner, he would definitely be interested in them. 
In terms of making difficult decisions going into the March 8th deadline and beyond, uh, which general manager has the more difficult decisions to make? Is it Craig Conroy in Calgary or Kyle Dubas in Pittsburgh? Um, I think that, well, I, I, look, I, I think that Conroy, the decisions are actually, like the overall path is pretty easy, right? Um you know, the, the, the clock, the contract clock determines you've got to make your decisions. Um, you're, pro, you're, you're dealing Tanev, you're dealing Lindholm. I think Hannafin has to make a decision on which way he wants to go here. And you're not going to Markstrom unless you're in a situation where, um, where he, you get something that's so incredible that you can't say no to it or, he says to you, I want to go somewhere, which as far as I know, he hasn't done. I think Conroy's in a situation where those choices are kind of made for him. Dubis is his, his overall point is, is a little bit different. He's in a situation where he's got great players, hall of famers who want to win. But he knows that he's got a strong uh, foundation, but not enough around it. And Look, the Penguins, I didn't check this morning, but yesterday they were six points out of the playoffs. And that's going to be tough for them to make up. It's really hard to make up those numbers with the loser point in the NHL. And they've got Crosby having an MVP season. And I think the Penguins are internally are not blind to the fact that they don't have a lot of uh, lot coming. So I think at the, at the same time that they want to try to win – I think the organization knows they have to rebuild the cupboard. And I think that's, you know, I think that's had a lot to do with the way the Gensel negotiations have gone in the sense that I think there's an understanding here that even if they keep them, they may not be doing the kinds of short-term things you need to do to contend every season. So I think anytime you've got a guy like Crosby and also guys like Malkin, Latang, and Eric Carlson, and you're saying we're not taking our shot every year, that's a difficult tightrope to walk. And so I think that even though Dubas went in with both eyes open, I think he was well aware of what might need to be happening here because it's Pittsburgh and because it's that group of players, I think it's more challenging to, to sell that kind of vision. Was the Eric Carlson acquisition a mistake? I don't, you know, I, I think that's... I've, I think it's too early to say in the sense that in, in the sense that they didn't like he still got time left, right? Like it's like like to me, I don't necessarily judge any like I do think was it the number one thing they needed? No, I don't think it was the number one thing they needed. Uh, but when you're trying to win, you know, you're the guy's coming off a hundred point season. You don't have to pay his full contract. Um, uh, I think that you, you're in a situation where you didn't give up a lot of what you had. I understand the shot they took. Mm-hmm. I just think the biggest challenge with Carlson is that, and I've talked about this before, he, you have to set him up for success in a way that not a lot of other people need to be set up in the league. There's a certain way you need to play. There's certain roles that he needs to have. And you could see it earlier in the season 
that they were struggling with adjusting to him and what he needs. The same thing happened in San Jose. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes to me, like there's some guys you trade for them and you just plop them right in your lineup and they go and, and they go. Carlson is not like that. You put him in your lineup and other players have to figure out how to play with him. And it takes longer. Um, look, like, I think in I think in this business, and I get it, it's sports radio, we jump to conclusions very quickly. This has still got a little bit of time to play out. And I well, one thing I've learned about Carlson is when it comes to him, it takes a while for everyone to learn how to play with him. It is a tight rope that they're walking in Pittsburgh or Kyle Dubas is walking because Sid is thirty six and I know he's still a terrific yeah. player, but Gino's 37, Latang's 36, and, you know, like, is the plan to turn it around so quickly or inject youth into that lineup that they can be a contender while Sid is still under contract or Sid is still there? And and, and especially he is the player that he is. I mean, I, I, there's no bigger Sidney Crosby fan in terms of respecting his game than me, but like, yep. what's his game going to be like in two years? Uh, you know, I, I, it's funny. We I had this conversation with someone the other day, uh, Jason, and I think he can be whatever he wants to be. Like, like for example, one of the one of the, another player in the league was looking at the way he's scoring this year, and they and he said, "Look, if Crosby ever slowed down, he could easily be converted from a center to a scoring winger." Mm-hmm. Like they, they said, you know, you can do that, no problem with him, because he can score and he's smart and he's. Really, he's got a great shot, and he's proven he's a 50-goal scorer in this league. But what this player said to me was, the big question is, would he want that? He said, like, if you, he said, if you, could, if you said to me that Sidney Crosby could score 50 goals as a 40-year-old winger in the NHL, I'd believe you. Mm-hmm. But I'm not convinced Sidney Crosby would want to be told that he's no longer a first-line center. And so I don't, I think if the other players in the league talk like that, I don't worry about him at all. Now, I think that if Gensel gets traded and they're supposed to meet and talk about this right now, um, or over All-Star weekend, um, I think it could be interesting to see what Crosby's reaction is. And then we'll get to the summer and, and see kind of where all this goes. But um, you know, I, I, I think I, I, I definitely think it's a story to watch. Like where does all, if the Penguins say, look, we're not, we're not making the short term moves, which I believe is their philosophy. Then it'll be interesting to see where all this goes. But, um, I've, I've radioed myself enough this week and I'm going to be <laughs> a little careful before making any proclamations. Oh, okay. That's that's too bad because my next question is about Elias Pettersson and <laughs> the, the All Star break, and I was wondering if he was going to meet with his reps in Toronto while he's in Toronto for yeah. the All Star game, and whether or not that could lead to a conversation with the Canucks. Because I know what PD said 
I know he said, you know, save it for the the end of the season, but to be fair to us, Pat Brisson did say it was still possible that there could be negotiations during the season. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think the thing is this. I just don't think Pedersen likes it being this public. Um, I, I really don't. I, I've learned a lot about Pedersen this year. Um, and, you know, some of it is just the conversation we had on the boat in Sweden. And I've kind of made it a personal thing to find out as much as uh, I can about him. And the, the thing that I've really learned about Pedersen is he doesn't like his words getting parsed. I think when you're like, you look at this thing with Tockett and him last week, um, you know, Tockett things like, like I remember I, I got into Ron Wilson when he was coaching the Leafs got mad at me once because he told us in the morning that Luke Shen was going to be a healthy scratch for the first time. And so I, I told our guys and I said, I didn't make a big deal about it during the day, but you know, I said, we have to be prepared for it in the show. So we talked about it at length in the show and he got mad about that. He said, I didn't tell you that so you could make a big deal of it in your show. And I said, you know what? I understand that. And we kept it quiet until the show started, but it's impossible in Toronto for this not to be a big story. This is a first round draft pick and he's being scratched for the first time. Of course, we're going to talk about it. And he thought I kind of violated his trust. And I said, I think I kept your trust, but I think you're unrealistic about what kind of story this is. Anyway, it kind of reminded me about that whole talk at Patterson thing. And, um, you know, talk at things, he's giving an honest answer. And because it's Patterson, he's your best player or one of your best players. I, I don't, I don't want the Quinn Hughes stands to be coming after me here um, <laughs> because he's one of your best players. And because it's Vancouver and you guys love your hockey, love your Canucks. It's a big conversation, right? And I think pocket has to realize what market he's in, but I also understand that he's trying to be honest and doesn't think it should turn into a fiasco when he's simply trying to be honest. It's the nature of the beast in a city like Vancouver just like it is in a city like Toronto. And I think that's one of the toughest things that Pedersen has to deal with is he doesn't like the way everything gets picked apart and parsed. And so I think he feels the best way for him to handle it is take this all off the table, mm-hmm. punt it until the summer. And it's possible it changes. Like we've talked about this a lot. I think the Canucks have made it very clear that when he's ready, they've got a, a, a pickup truck full of money for him and they will be happy to extend him. I just don't think he wants this discourse during the season. I think it bothers him and it annoys him. And I just think his, the best way for him to deal with it is eliminate the conversation. And I think that's the hurdle that the Canucks face right now. Is it realistic for him to expect it to just go away? Uh, no, I think that's kind of what I was just saying yeah. there, Jason. Like, you know, you can't, 
Um, um, you can't expect it to go away, but like, here's the one thing everybody has yeah. to understand. It's not like, and, and this is what I'm realizing with Pedersen is that everyone's different, mm-hmm. right? Like some people can handle stuff better than others. And that's not to say that one person is better than someone else or one person is worse than someone else. But it's a recognizing that not all of us are wired the same. Like we all have like in our business now, we're public figures. Everything we do right and wrong, it happens in public and we get judged in public. And I, I tell I tell people now who are going into this business that you have to know the world that you're stepping into. That's our lives now. Um, I mean, everybody decides how much their life is public to some degree, but we are in the media public figures and everything we do good, people see it. Everything we do bad, people see it. And, you know, people can just write to us and say whatever they want all over the Internet (laughs) and we can see it. And some people can handle that and some people can't. It's just the way it is. I I think with Pedersen. Even though he's a public figure and a star and he's going to be paid well, I just don't think he likes it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hate it when my words are twisted. I, I mean, it doesn't happen to me all that often. I imagine it happens to you, but I'll see, like, Bruff said this, and I'm like, I did not say that, or I didn't, or I definitely didn't mean it that way. Um, mm-hmm. I imagine that happens to you. How did you, was that a process for you to get used to that and just be like, hey, I got to accept that this is going to happen? Yeah, I think like, like I've always had a pretty thick skin. It's gotten thicker. I mean, like everybody else, there's always things that get to you that, you know, there's, we all have these things that no matter how much we prepare ourselves for, um, if, if, if there's one topic or one thing that'll just, it'll just get you no matter what. I think the one thing I always talk about is you got to pick your battles. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, all, all the amazing, like, and I, I also don't believe fights on social media really solve anything. As a matter of fact, I think they, you look worse in them nine times out of 10. Totally. But, you know, I think the thing is, I, I, it's like the Zadora thing the other day. I was a little bit careless and I didn't explain it as well as I wanted to. And whose fault is that? That's my fault. And I do a lot of radio interviews and I do a lot of TV interviews and the podcast and I write and you're going to, some days things are going to happen. You're like, ah, I should have done that better. And some days you're going to be like, ah, I just got twisted or radioed. You have to just decide what you want, what battles you want to pick. And I just think that's the case with Pedersen. I, I just know, like one thing I've, I've learned about him is that he just doesn't like it when his words are parsed. Like when he says something, he says it. He doesn't like it when people say, oh, what's the meaning behind this? How do I interpret this? That's the stuff I think that makes him, Mike and Jason, kind of crazy. Yeah. No, he, he, he's, he's a fascinating personality, and, and, yeah. and I think everyone in Vancouver is, like, they, they want to get to know him, but they don't know what he's thinking. And we appreciate you coming on today and just well, helping you us know, you discover know the one, a little bit more. The, the, the one thing I would say is, and I would say this to Canuck fans, I think there are times to worry about the future and there are times to enjoy the present, right? I think you guys are enjoy the present mode. 
Like you can't, if Pedersen doesn't want to talk about the contract, there's nothing the Canucks fans can do about that. Mm -hmm. And I think you guys have a chance for a really special season. Your best players are playing great. Uh, Your goalies look great. Like one of the best trades in the NHL this year might be the DeSmith deal. Totally. Because he's been good and it's allowed Demko to get the rest he needs. Your talk, it clearly has resonated with everybody on the roster from player one to player 23. Like you guys have a chance for something special. And um, in Canada, we know that that doesn't happen too often. So I know there's a lot of angst about Pedersen's future. Right now, if I was in Vancouver, I'd be enjoying the presence. Well, we definitely are. It's been it's been a it's been a really fun, remarkable to me, shocking season. And uh, you know, it's good for business for us. So we're super happy with it, and we're super happy that uh, you could join us today, Fridge. No worries, guys. Have a great day. YouTube. Thanks, Fridge. That's Elliot Friedman, Sportsnet Insider. Thirty-two thoughts here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet six fifty. Got to go to break quick because coming up on the other side. Marie-Philippe Poulin is going to join the program. You're listening to the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.